14 minutes it is after 8 p.m. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. It's our Thought Leader Thursday segment, and my guest this evening is uh, advocate Tembega Ngugaitobi. He's the author of Land Matters, South Africa's Failed Land Reforms and uh, the Road Ahead. And he joins me now on the line. Mshagas, good evening to you and welcome. Good evening. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm uh, very pleased to be on your show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real pleasure to have you on the show. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, congratulations, firstly, on the book. But also, oh, uh, you. Sabona, that uh, you're also now an acting judge. So, my guess is you're going to go down. I wonder where you find all the time. I mean, where do you find the time with all the cases and everything else that you're doing? Wusu uh, convocation and everything else. Yeah, you know, I said to someone the other day uh, that actually what I find um, the older I get is that you make time for the things you really like. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but there are some certain sacrifices you must make uh, if we are, yeah, to be serious. There are certain sacrifices you must make and um, and certain people you must disappoint mm. on the social front uh, in order to do things that uh, that make a difference to you. No, definitely, definitely, definitely. It doesn't come without its own social costs, if I can put it that way. Yes, but, it, it, yeah. it, 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 it uh, sometimes uh, an economic cost. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Let's maybe take a step back uh, before we get into the book and first understand, you know, um, and I guess the genesis of your own interest in matters of the law, uh, the history of, uh, you know, the African people, the national question, and in particular, of course, this issue of land. I mean, Ivela uh, Piong. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, you know, so, I mean, that's my own sort of story. I mean, I, I was born, well, I don't know exactly where I was born. I mean, in Cape Town in the Eastern Cape, but I was certainly raised in the former Transkai area in a small town called Tala, in mm. a small village called uh, Lupapas, and raised primarily by my grandmother and my aunt. Um, because my father died whilst I was very, very young, and my mother had to basically go and look for a job. But we were born in a, a village in, in which to survive, you had to work the land. You had to be in the garden. Uh, we didn't have a lot of land, but we had access to some land, mm. and uh, most of the food that was produced, and most of the food that was eaten, was worked by our own hands. So matters of land were always central to me and my own uh, upbringing. But in today's uh, today's interest, that doesn't really germinate from you know that upbringing. It's largely my work, basically as a human rights uh, uh, lawyer, mm. um, which is something that started quite late uh, because. I started thinking seriously about human. I wanted to be a lawyer from a young age, uh, and that had to do with. Uh, me discovering that when my father died, he himself wanted to be a lawyer, basically mm. just trying to fulfill his own dream for himself. But I didn't at that stage know that I wanted to be a human rights lawyer. Sure, sure. It was only when I worked at the Legal Resources Center in Graham South, as uh, uh, basically just a post-university uh, employee um, and helping out, when I saw the, the significance and the difference that human rights can do to an individual. We we did cases there of people that had lost their pensions, mm. you know, people that had lost their claims, people that had been returned from the mines, you know, people that actually lost limbs, you know, someone working 
in a factory and they lose the entire hand. And uh, the question is about whether they should be compensated and if so, on what scale. Mm. So at that point, it became clear to me that law, in fact, can make a difference between whether you have food at home or not. Mm. And then I started thinking in a more systematic way about how that can be achieved. Because you can do it for one person, but to make a real difference, you need to do it for a much larger pool of uh, individuals. Mm. so at that point, I always knew that the, the law that does make a difference is, is human rights-oriented. Sure. So land set, fell into that mm. uh, broader pattern of types of cases that make a difference. Sure, sure. And I guess the land also, I mean, is another thing, uh, you know, Advocate Ngai Tobi, uh, that determines whether or not there's food on the table. I mean, if you think just about the history of, of dispossession uh, of the part of the world that, uh, you know, you come from... Uh, uh, even before the Glen Grey Act, you know, um, and of course the Glen Grey Act as a piece of legislation, in effect, you know, envisaged a certain kind of property relations in that part of the world that continues to be, uh, I guess, you know, a major uh, pain point uh, in that part of the world to this day. Yeah, I mean, if you want sort of a perfect illustration of dispossession that you know, is not only entrenched, but is sustained and, in a sense, repeated. Mm. The best place is the Eastern Cape, because uh, places like uh, Emonti or Islanda, or places like Echili or Graham Sound, or places like Ekon mm. or King William Sound, not, despite the, the fact that they, they carried English names for hundreds of years, still retained proper um, identities. Sure. And that always raises the question as to how they acquired those proper identities if they were areas for European settlement. Mm. And that raises a further inquiry as to at what point did they lose their proper uh, uh, identity or proper cultural significance. And so in that area, in a sense, you grow up with history. Mm. You grow up with the past. It's, in a sense, embedded in your own veins and embedded in your own bones. And the most iconic story, not at school, but told from generation to generation, is Nongawusa's great cattle killing. Mm, mm. There is not a single foster uh, child that I know of that has never been told of that story. Yeah, that's true. And over time, and that story is, happened in 1857. But as I was growing up in the 80s and in the 90s, that story was being repeated. Mm, it mm. is still an iconic story today. Mm. Advocate. And that story is tied up with this yeah. position. Advocate, so, I want us to pause here for a second. Uh, when we come back, uh, I want us to continue on this vein and I guess also unpack how all of these very you know, uh, um, important histories of dispossession have effectively framed land uh, as something both in the apartheid period but also in the post-apartheid period um, and how that interfaces i guess with notions of private property and how we must protect it so we'll come back to those themes after this break thank you it is indeed and uh, 23 minutes it is after 8 p.m our thought leader on this thursday is advocate uh, tembega ngukai tobi he's an author uh, now acting judge uh, and uh, um, advocate uh, who works uh, in uh, the world of human rights law and in particular 
uh, I guess, uh, with a keen interest in uh, questions of land. And his latest book, Land Matters, South Africa's Failed Land Reforms and Road Ahead, uh, is what uh, we discuss uh, this evening. And uh, Advocate Ngai Tobi, you know, I guess before we went to the break, you were making this point. Uh, of, um, you know, the living, I guess, you know, memorial to all of this dispossession uh, as can be seen in the Eastern Cape. Um, And as I was saying earlier, uh, in many instances, the law had been used in that context to justify this uh, uh, dispossession of land and in some cases even the dispossession uh, of of any other wealth, be it cattle uh, or any other means of survival outside of wage labor, uh, you know, for for the African people of that part of the world and other parts uh, of South Africa. Let's talk about the kind of um, the kind of um, framework of liberation that then passes on in the 20th century to some of the organizations that emerge. I mean, there's often this idea that the 20th century is when the military wars of dispossession and conquest end, and there's now more, I guess, political uh, and diplomatic relations of that kind. But how do those unfold, and what is their understanding of the land question uh, in relation to what they understand liberation to mean? Yeah, I mean, what was most interesting about the, firstly, the just the general land debate is, is how narrow um, the parameters of the debate are, mm. um, which ignore questions of acculturation, uh, questions of stock losses, and questions of the uh, labor and exploitation of labor. What happened in the 20th century was an interesting uh, development because although in the Cape in particular, the laws were transformed to make them quote-unquote liberal, enabling everyone to vote Mm. as early as 1851. At the same time, that is the period at which the wars of dispossession were at their zenith. So on the one hand, they were enabling African people to vote, provided that they had a property. But at the same time, they were taking the property on a massive scale and ultimately finally taking virtually all of the lucrative land by 1878 and driving mm-hmm. the, 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 the cost of speaking people to basically the reserves of what we call today the trans guy and the, the, the sky. Mm. That story is also um, prevalent in Zululand. By 1879, notwithstanding the temporary success at Isandwan, ultimately the British overpower the Zulu kingdom and they are forced to submit to the control, political control of the British. One of the most enduring legacies of the laws of that area was the installation of the idea of private property. Mm. And it became quite a significant feature of black life because private property became tied up with franchise. And franchise was a significant political right. It signified the fact of your political humanity and your political participation. That informed most of the early thinking in relation to the early African intellectuals, most of their early thinking was based on this idea of acquiring private property by way of title mm. as a mechanism to exercise political freedom. 
And once those two were tied, uh, it became almost a religion to struggle for the right to acquire land, for the right to buy land, for the right to own land. And the idea that before the invasion of South Africa by the colonists, private property in relation to land was an unknown Mm. feature. There was Mm. private property in relation to stock and cattle, but communal property ownership understanding in relation to land. But by 1913, when the Native Land Act is passed, prohibiting the acquisition of land by natives under Section 1, by natives outside of native reserves and forcing them to only acquire inside the native reserves unless permitted by the Governor General. By that point, the liberation movement, which had been established a year earlier, the ANC, it was firmly fixed on the idea that freedom is tied with private property, property ownership, particularly private property mm. ownership. And that remained a defining element of their understanding of freedom. Today, our own land reform program is still tied to the same notion that the holy grail of land reform is private property ownership. That it embeds restrictions and constraints inside it seems to have been forgotten. We have a utopian understanding that one day all 58 million of us will have private titles to a piece of ground. Mm, Sounds unlikely, eh? very unlikely. Well, (laughs) not only is it unlikely, it also uh, negates the lived reality of the majority of African people. Mm, mm. Many, many African people, 22 million of us, live in areas of traditional or communal land where there is no private title. Mm. But everybody knows that this is your stand Mm. and it is your family stand and it will be the stand of your children. Sure, sure. And that's not entrenched, not entrenched by a title deed, but it is entrenched by social mm. and cultural rules yeah yeah what what that are uh, applicable in the community you know what advocate um, you know uh, who's this achima feje would call social ties of kinship yeah uh, so you know that abandu basekaya they've lived on this particular area nanzinsimiyabo and and that i guess is passed down in in some patrilineal fashion down uh, different successive generations of the family but i want to yeah. ask you something on this question that you're raising now uh, I mean, I've had many debates, uh, you know, with somebody like Wandelis around this issue of private, of, of ten, the type of tenure form. Because in the debate, it does seem, even in how we talk about housing, for instance, uh, yeah. even the, the notion of RTP home on the urban perifer- periphery as something where giving p- title to people is something that we talk about in these terms that it's part of our reforms, it's part of us doing something good. Uh, yet we, we often don't think about the unintended consequences and how those links with the financial system could effectively either reverse your program, but also they might not be ideal in context where you've got successive generations of communal ownership of land under these ties of social kinship, where uh, this notion of private property defined in the fashion that I think many um, you know bureaucrats, politicians are trying to move towards is something that probably wouldn't be able to take root but might even lead to conflict in many of those areas. Yes, so... Take one example. I mean, your point is, is spot on. Take one example. In March 2018, 
President Ramaphosa announced what he called Title Deeds Friday. Mm. He claimed that he would allocate 11,000 title deeds to individuals, presumably from Soweto and Alex, whom he did not define. The class of beneficiaries was unclear, mm. but the target was everyone must have a title deed. He disappeared and never came back to announce whether or not 11,000 people had received title deeds. But here is the point about title deeds. He intended to allocate the title deeds to people who stand in Soweto, but he would give it to the mother, to the father, to the son, to the uncle, because the apartheid system was to put every family member in a four-bedroom house. Do you give it to the daughter? Do you give it to their own son? Do you give it to the grandchild? Because the reason private title is so distinct and, in a sense, so constraining is because private title's main feature is exclusion. Right? That is what private title is, is exclusion. So every time you talk about a title deed, mm. the first question you ask is who is excluded? Mm. So once you give it to the mother, is the father excluded? And most of these allocations, and you can talk about communal areas, an allocation of a stand in a communal land, which is regulated by rules of social and cultural norms, mm. lacks that element of exclusion because its defining feature is accommodation. Accommodation of your neighbors, accommodation of family members, mm. even accommodation of the dead. Sure, sure. Because they get buried in the same land. So this is where the reform itself, in a sense, faces an internal constraint because its philosophical logic mm. defeats its very basis. Mm. And... and so, yeah, I mean, I guess right. there's an implication to this. We're not talking about this just in very nice theoretical terms so that we, we leave this conversation so nobile and then, you know. But, but, but it has implications for the existing policy programs in the three legs of the land reform program, the restitution, yeah. redistribution, and tenure reform program. Because if you're unable to resolve what aspirational template or tenure form you're looking for, you're not going to be able to resolve the, the type of duality that... Uh, you know, obtains in the countryside and even in the urban context, uh, where in some cases, you know, in the countryside, you've got different tenure systems living alongside each other in very uneasy ways. And similarly, I think, you know, with the history of migrant labor that we have, the the vexing questions of who has claim on land in the city that is defined in very specific ways. Precisely. It has practical consequences. This is not a question merely of philosophical contemplation. Mm. The three programs, restitution, redistribution, land tenure reform, are all tied by the same central idea that their aspiration is to make us title deed holders. Mm. That's government policy. Land claimants, even in instances where the land that was taken was taken on a communal basis, mm. when that land is referred back, it's referred on a title deed given to a communal property association in terms of which each beneficiary of a communal property association is supposedly a shareholder of sorts mm. and holds a particular undefined share. But that we have seen is simply a recipe for conflict. In 2017, the government recognized the problem and announced its intention 
to abolish the communal property association model. But it never replaced it, with, or at least came with another theoretical mm-hmm. framework. Mm-hmm. But it also has implications for the land redistribution program. The main program that is applied in land redistribution is the so-called farmless program. They acquire a lease, they acquire a farm, they warehouse it, they make you apply for a lease, and the lease says you can take it, but after five years you may buy it. And those are huge farms, 150 uh, hectares, 200 hectares, 300 hectares. But one man is able to acquire and buy it. But the question again is who is outside? And the third element, which is the issue of land tenure, is also based on the idea that one day we will all have title deeds. Mm. But none of these can ultimately deliver. What we want is land justice. Mm. What the Constitution promises is secure tenure. What it promises is equitable access. So those three concepts, land justice, security of tenure, access on an equitable mm-hmm. basis to the land do not have to translate yeah. to a title deed system would you we argue would you argue that in effect there's been a capture by the market logic of even that reform process so precisely like, not yeah, only yeah, sure. by the logic of the market the logic of the market is dominant it runs through it's embedded it runs through the entire land reform program mm. but there is also a capture by land owners mm. so not only is their ideology uh, prevalent from concepts like willing sell or willing buy, but landowners themselves are dominant as players. Take one program where the dominance, in fact, another author called it a uh, land veto. Take one program, which is redistribution of land. Mm. The first question to answer in a redistribution context is, when am I going to get the land? So how is the land made available? Sure. In this country, for the past 25 years, Land has been made available in two forms only, by the open market, alternatively through um, uh, 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 some other agreement with the landowner. So willing buyer, willing seller type thing, yeah? Yes, with, mm. yes it's, uh, it's, it's basically when they put the land in the open market. Mm. That's the only way that the land becomes available. Now, the question is, who decides which land goes to the market for sale? Ah, the, the sellers themselves. Yes. Mm. Now, after that, the next question you must decide is how much am I going to pay? Mm. Now, the people who are price setters are the landowners. Mm. The third question is what is the land used for? The land use question. The people who decide that are the landowners. Mm. Now, how do they decide the uses of the land? The University of Stellenbosch recently published a study in which it showed that of all of the land made available in the open market or through the auction, which is another mechanism where they make land available, or through the auction, 99% of that land has been grazing land. In other words, food-producing land is being withheld from Mm. availability into Mm. the market. And they are able to do that because they control the value chain of Mm. land. Then the final question you have to answer on the redistribution uh, front is who buys it? Now, if landowners do not want the government to buy the land, they simply withdraw it from the market Mm. or they withdraw it from the auction. And there is no mechanism of compelling the sale because the entire program is controlled by landowners. It it seems to me... 
it seems to be that entire value chain. I mean, there's so many institutional question marks. I mean, even the question on who sets the value of the price of what is sold. We've been talking about a value in general for the last 15 years or so, Ibonakali. With, with all that has been said and what we know, what is it that we can do to resolve this particular issue? Uh, and uh, certainly, what is your assessment of the, I guess, the value and the currency of looking to, you know, Section 25 of the Constitution, uh, in, in particular around the question of expropriation without compensation? Yeah, so the first thing is land is too expensive, but the price of land is not going to be reduced by expropriation without compensation. Mm. What we need is to think seriously about is to think seriously about um, affordable prices. In other words, to make sense of justice and equity as the elements that are in the Constitution. So that's one thing, is to reduce the prices. They are just too high. The second thing is to reform the dominance and the control of landowners in the value chain of land, which means the state needs to identify the land it wishes to acquire for its purposes, which it currently doesn't have. The third, the third thing that we need, we have many, many claims that have been made appending, have not been resolved. The government needs an institutional mechanism that will be devoted mm. to the resolution of pending land claims. They need to be finalized and resolved. Then finally, on a longer-term basis, we need to match the redistribution and the restitution program. Mm. Too much time and resources have been spent on the restitution program. Sure. But the restitution program from the get-go is a limited program. Advocate, it simply can never deliver land justice. Advocate. We've got to remember, what we need advocate. is land justice. Advocate Mugai Tobi, hey, yeah, yeah. But let's allow you to complete the point there. And it's, it's quite unfortunate that we have run out of time. And maybe this is one of the ones where we have to have a part two. So, and uh, we can certainly try and invite you again. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so, yes, so, yes. So, so it means Hey, why are you And we'll certainly bring you back. We'll bring you back next week. But complete that point you were making there because I think it's very important because you're saying let's bring together the restitution and the redistribution yes. framework. Yeah. Uh, yes. Complete that point. Yeah, so some authors have argued that because of the problems that are embedded in the restitution program, it should be abandoned entirely. Mm. But I think it would be a mistake to abandon restitution entirely because of its significance, just the moral significance of retaining somebody from uh, to the source. Sure, sure. And that still remains a, a very, very important uh, sign of liberation that you've been returned to where you were taken away from. So, but we, uh, it's clear that land restitution will never solve land hunger, mm. which is the problem we have in South Africa. Land hunger on a sustainable basis can only be resolved through a redistribution program. So some elements of the restitution program, such as the fact that the land available is not left to the dictates of landowners, mm. but it is actively driven by claimants and the state. Sure, sure needs to be brought into the restitution frame. But the key to restitution, which is basically people get land on the basis of their need. Mm. That's mm. what the future should look like. Mm. People need land in the cities I where they live. I'll tell you, each according to his need. 
Uh, but tell you what, let's do this. Let's do this. Let, let's pause on this score. So I'm and Yoke saying, I'm party bomb and Sipinda's not going to now. For part two of this conversation, because what I want us to do next week is to unpack some of the institutional issues that you are raising, which I think okay. are very important because at each stage of value chain land reform, we yeah. need institutional mechanisms that can at least check. Uh, the power of incumbents, the power of people who have established themselves on the land, and effectively, in the case of uh, a lot of you know agricultural producing land, the power of market interests. Um, and, exactly. uh, and transform those interests. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So we'll certainly come back to those themes for part two. Can't be too but masishi No, fantastic. Thank you for the call and thank you for the time. Thank you very much. Advocate Tambega Ngugai Tobi, uh, the author there of Land Matters, uh, South Africa's Failed Land Reforms and the Road Ahead. Uh, so certainly do go check that out at your nearest bookstore. 14 minutes it is now before 9 p.m. We shift our attention to our culture talk segment. And uh, yeah, hoping to catch up uh, for part two of that conversation next week. To see how uh, we can continue with that because I do think it's a very important conversation. But we now shift gear uh, and speak to Setlam Rajo Mashilo, who is uh, yeah, the um, man behind a new solo exhibition 